the Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. Well, this time last week we were sitting here wondering if there would be a duck season late on Friday. It was finally announced a shortened season with limits on the amount of birds that can be killed. And it seems... Not everyone is happy. You can tell, certainly tell us your thoughts. You can send a text 0467 842 722. Also, while that was going on, ministers, water ministers from around the Murray-Darling Basin were meeting. A deadline is fast approaching on the Murray-Darling Basin plan. By mid next year, most of the water, well, all of the water has to be procured. Not much was decided on what was going to happen, even though there's widespread agreement the plan will not be done in time. We'll find out more about that meeting today on the program as well. You can call 1300 977 or text 0467 842 This is the Country Hour and Emma Field has rural news. Hi, Emma. G'day, Was. We'll start today by continuing to keep an eye on developments overseas with the spread of avian flu. Cambodian health officials say they've tested about a dozen people for the new strain of bird flu after an 11-year-old girl died from the virus last week. The BBC's Abigail Maudsley reports the child was the first person to die of the disease in Cambodia since 2014. The Cambodian Health Ministry said it had tested at least 12 people who'd been in contact with the girl who died on Wednesday. It hasn't disclosed the other results and said that her father wasn't showing symptoms. Nevertheless, the diagnosis is likely to cause concern at the possibility that this highly pathogenic strain of flu may have passed directly between humans. More commonly, it's caught by humans and other mammals through contact with sick or dead birds. The case comes amid a huge global outbreak of H5N in wild and domesticated birds in which millions have died or been culled. Potato harvest has kicked off in areas of South Australia, but growers are warning that a reduced crop, due to hit the shell soon, comes at a time when supplies are already short. Potato farmer Terry Buckley started harvesting his crisp potatoes last week on a farm outside of Mount Gambia. He says early signs point to a potentially lower harvest yield. Well, we're underway. We're doing crisping potatoes for sending to Adelaide. Quality's very, very good, and uh, but our yield, I don't think, is where it needs to be. It's going to be a bit light on, and I get a feeling that's going to be the theme for the season a bit. Finished up planting a lot of potatoes a month later than we should have, uh, as we as we normally do, and in like in Ballarat over there, they're like six weeks behind where they should be. So it depends now how the autumn goes, and already you're getting these quite damp mornings at times, and when you get that sort of thing, it's hard to keep your crop growing. It tends to want to senesce and die or the target spot of blight gets in. and So we need a long, summery sort of an autumn to finish off the crops that are later. So. The demand for dairy is robust, according to the industry, despite a 15% rise in the price of dairy products in the supermarkets. And while demand is high, milk production has slumped and dairy analysts are predicting a change in consumer buying trends. Dairy Australia analyst John Droppett predicts the price of dairy products in the shops will jump even more. I think there's probably a little bit more uh, inflation to come through. If you talk about that 15% uh, increase on the supermarket shelf, that compares with you know a, a 30% increase uh, this season and, and another 5% uh, last season for Farmgate prices. So if you think about all the you know all the players in the middle, they've been squeezed um, over the past season, and of course. 
you know, farmers are, are paying much more at the farm gate for their purchased inputs as well. And so it sort of stands to reason, especially with the milk pool contracting, that um, some more of that is going to get passed through to the consumer as, you know, this whole kind of commercial equilibrium works its way out over the next year or two. As the prices offered to macadamia growers cracks under the pressure of a global glut, an industry veteran admits some newcomers to the business of growing the native nut will struggle. With a record macadamia crop for Australia this year, nut in shell prices are falling below $2 a kilogram, down from $6 a kilogram a few years ago. Chairman of the Macadamia Industry Varietals Improvement Committee, Lindsay Bryan, says research is key to reducing costs and increasing productivity. So it is really the Australia's only commercial native food that's been developed. There are a few others, but yes, it's uh, been a real success. And it's, and it's, as you say, it's been grown around the world in a lot of different countries and it's becoming more and more popular as a food around the world too. Precocity is, yeah, it's, it's early production of nuts. I suppose 30 years ago, orchards started to produce nuts in year five and six, and now we've got orchards that can produce nuts in year two and three, predominantly year three, and, uh, and have commercial yields by year four or five. It is a long game, yeah. Not a cash crop, this is permanent agriculture. That's what it is, tree agriculture, horticulture. And that's Rural News for this Monday. Thanks very much for that. That's Emma Field there with Rural News for you here on The Country Hour. The Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. Yes, and this time last week we were wondering if there was going to be a duck season and finally late on Friday the government confirmed that it would uh, go ahead. The recreational duck hunting season will go ahead, but it won't run for the three months this season. It will be cut to five weeks from April the 26th, uh, a.m. start to May the 30th uh, with a bag limit of four ducks a day and it seems well no one is happy hunter groups are disappointed at the shorter season and anti-duck season groups are disappointed it's going to head going ahead altogether despite numerous requests uh, before and after the announcement the minister for outdoor recreation sonia kilkenny has again refused to come on the program to talk about the uh, thinking behind the decision and the government's stance uh, earlier today though fiona parker spoke to kerry allen who's a spokesperson for regional victorians against duck shooting and this is her uh, on that program earlier today? Look, it is good it's been cut short, but it should have been cut up altogether. There's a lot of groups that are very disappointed and, and quite shocked. We thought this was the year that Victoria would follow the lead of other states. There was every reason for them to. They should have cancelled it to give the birds a chance to recover, to do some proper social economic impact studies and some risk assessments while they look at uh, a permanent ban. Why do you think they haven't cancelled it altogether this year? Look, we can only uh, surmise that it's pressure from the shooting lobby groups that has made them buckle. Um, But quite frankly, I I think, if I'm reading the room, I think both sides of this debate would just prefer that the Band-Aid's ripped off. If they're going to ban it, just ban it and deal with the music. It's just, it's been an emotional roller coaster since late January when they started talking about potentially banning it. Really, let's get with the times, Victoria. It's time to follow the lead of other states on this. 
Given that they are holding this um, Legislative Council Select Committee to examine recreational native bird hunting in Victoria, and given they have cut the season to five weeks, and given the daily bag limit is just four birds, can you now see the writing on the wall for duck hunting in Victoria? Look, we hope that... um It's going to be banned, but we really do seriously question the need for an inquiry. They've got plenty of evidence already. The problem that we've got with restrictions, and I think I might have mentioned this to you once before, Fiona, is restrictions are all well and good in theory, but unless authorities are going to be out there monitoring what is going on, they're they're pointless. So shooting birds is unfortunately allowed to take place at thousands of public waterways around the state, and we estimate... Only about 1% of them are monitored. That's Kerry Allen, who is a spokesperson for regional uh, Victorians against duck shooting, speaking to Fiona Parker. Many of you on the text already having your say. This one saying, from Paul High Warwick, I'm not a duck shooter, just a farmer. Ducks can foul a dam in a few days. The wood ducks are the worst and should be targeted, says Paul. Phil says, yay, bring on duck seasons. There are so many ducks around. I will be able to shoot my bag for every day for the season. Fresh organic duck dinner coming up. Legal for another year, says Phil. And this one says, it's complete, if complete common sense is applied, there should be zero restrictions on length and bag limit every season. Genuine stakeholders are being punished by underqualified decision makers that have set this season off a baseless reasoning and have pandered to the eternally upset green minority. Enough is enough, says that text message as well. Joe says, the duck slaughters get two votes. I don't know what you mean by that joke, but thanks for your text as well. Uh, that's all of the ones on duck hunting we have so far. You can keep them coming. 0467 842 Jeff Borman is in the upper house of Victorian Parliament, representing the Shooters, Fishers and Farmers Party, and he can join you now. Welcome to the Country Hour. Thanks for having me on. Uh, a season has been called, reduced to five weeks and a limit of four birds per day. What's your thoughts on this decision from the government? This decision from the government is basically 100% political because they went through all the effort of getting their own scientists to come up with a report that got forwarded to them which said four birds a day for a full season. So to do anything else is uh, goes against the science which is basically, you know, what we've been told to do. Well, do the whole pandemic, trust the science, trust the science. Now they've got their own uh, science here in front of them. They've decided to go an alternative way. So, uh, the, so it, the government's it, it, ignored the advice saying there should be a full season here. Is That's your view? Well, it's actually not my view. It's actually the facts. The fact is that they were told to have it. We're not told. It, the report said that they should have a full season, and they didn't. So um, if we can't trust the scientists, who are we supposed to trust? So practically, what does this make the duck season look like for the shooters and the hunters that you represent, the shortened time frame and the, and the limits? What, what do you think it'll well, make this season look like? Well, what this season will look like is less money being injected into regional and rural economies um, because the four bag a day limit will be fine. But if everyone goes out there for the full five weeks, that's still only five weeks. There was, you know, it's basically three months otherwise that uh, people would be going into those regions, spending their money, keeping a limit on the duck numbers because you know, there's another thing that, um, that if they're not shot under a recreational shooting, then they will be basically culled with a permit to control wildlife, which is done on private property, which, of which there will be no police, GMA or anything. So, so frankly, all it's doing is, is punishing the shooters and the regional communities 
um, for a reason the government won't actually stand up and confess. And if you're talking about this now being a political decision by the government to, to shorten the season as opposed to, to listening to their own reports, the Murray-Darling Basin Authority, we're about to talk about this in a few moments, they say that that region of Australia is now 95% full. And uh, that so basically almost as full water-wise as you can get. You've got a reduced season here under these arrangements. So does that mean you think you're unlikely to get a full duck season ever again if there's this much water and duck breeding happening right now and it's a reduced season? Does that mean you're never going to see a full three-month season ever again? Well, frankly, this kind of proves that the the whole thing is about uh, ideology, emotion and politics because if there's that much water, and we've had it now for um, 12 or more months, if there's that much water, there's obviously enough reason enough scientific reason to be keeping a lid on the numbers of ducks if they can't do it now when can they do it they'll, they'll just have to absolutely confess that this is just pandering to the um the minority of people who whine once a year that they're about duck hunting and for the rest of the year the rest of the world just really doesn't care it's it's actually really bad politics on the government's behalf. So does that mean the end of the, the duck season is nigh, given, I suppose, you're talking about the politics of this and uh, your one vote and, and Labor has many more than you and they're in government at the moment. Does that mean that the season could, could be over soon? Well, it could be. I don't know whether they're just giving this, um, this committee to, to the wider us for uh, something to do to keep us distracted. But um, I might point out that whilst I am only one vote in the upper house, so is animal justice. And when you look at the numbers the government requires in the upper house, neither of us are needed to uh, needed by the government. So I don't know why they won't just go with their own science, um, because even the politics of the situation doesn't work for them. Well, and you mentioned there's a Legislative Council Select Committee announced by the government on, on Friday to look into this issue. The government says it's going to, to listen strongly to, to the advice of that committee. Is that something you will look to sit on as a member of the Up House? Oh, oh, absolutely. And in fact, I, I would be very unhappy if Animal Justice went on it as well, um, because uh, I will have a lot of time to spend, um, pardon the pun, shooting down their arguments. But um, also, I don't want them to come out at the end of it saying, well, we weren't part of it, we're just going to say no, um, we're not going to listen to it. I want everyone to be involved. Um, but I'm happy that, at least in, when it comes to facts, logic, data, science, that our argument will be all pervasive and anything else that comes out of that needs to start with once upon a time. So that's interesting to me. Uh, you are representing shooters, fishers and farmers, Georgie Purcell representing Animal Justice Party, the very public faces for and against uh, duck hunting, certainly politically in the upper house of Victorian Parliament. You'd like to see both of you represented on a select committee looking at the issue in Victoria. Oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm not in the least bit concerned about the arguments that the people that are anti-duck hunting can put up, put up to us because they're refuted easily. They're refuted... Well, they were refuted by the fact that the um, the report uh, that was commissioned by the government said we should have X, and then they gave us Y. Um, I'm I'm not in the least bit worried about anyone else's arguments. Did you know much about this committee before it was announced? Um, I found out about it when everyone else did. Um, when it came out in the announcement, and I thought, oh, that's um, that's nice. I would have been, um, you know, at least a bit of a heads up. But um, in fairness, I don't believe Animal Justice got a heads up either. So. Um, I'm more than happy to take it to a committee, more than happy. And do you expect to be out on Wednesday the 26th of April uh, at the start of duck shooting season, Jeff Borman? 
Uh, I can um, pretty well guarantee I won't. Um, I don't mention this pretty much at all, but I personally am not a duck hunter, Um, but I stand for duck hunting and hunting in general, and there's most definitely a hill I will die on. Um, I'm not not a fan of duck meat, and I won't just go out there to shoot something to watch it drop, Um, but everyone, or nearly everyone, that goes out there, when they go and shoot that duck, they don't just leave it there. They go and get it, as you're required by law, and then they'll go and cook it up. If I don't like the taste of it, then I'm not going to go and um, go and shoot it. But um, there seems to be some sort of uh, misconception that they're just shot and left there. Not, not only by law do you have to pick them up, you'll find that the, the hunters that go out there will eat them. That's the, whole, that's the whole purpose of it. Jeff Borman, thanks very much for joining us on the program today. No worries. Thanks for having me on again. Uh, Jeff Borman there from the Shooters, Fishers and Farmers Party taking you through uh, their reaction to the duck season being announced. And as I mentioned, uh, Wednesday the 26th of April 2023 to Tuesday the 30th of May 2023, inclusive bag limit of four birds per day. Uh, It will be prohibited to hunt blue-winged shoveler and hardhead across Victoria as both species were listed as threatened under the Flora and Fauna Guarantee Act of 1988. That's the announcement from the Game Management Authority there. Up on their website, you can see more details there. On the text line, uh, this one saying, I don't go duck shooting, but you need to keep all things in balance. You need to keep duck numbers in check for rice growers and market gardeners who grow veggies. It is as plain as the nose on your face. There's that one on the text line. Bill says, what's happening to ministerial accountability to the electors? Yet another Andrew Andrew's minister ducking an interview on a major radio program reaching country Victoria. I wonder if the pun is intended, Bill, but thank you very much for that text. Duck slaughters are getting the government nod. Must get two votes because they win every year. Ducks lose, says Joe. Oh, that was Joe. Uh, You were explaining what you said in your earlier text. Now I get it, Joe. Thank you very much for that. No duck hunting, no logging, no alpine grazing. What's next? State being led by too many uneducated minority groups. I've noticed a massive duck population breed up on the farm in the last few years eating crops. And uh, they're also salmonella spreaders, says Glenn in Gippsland. You can keep the text coming, 0467 842 722. We're going to talk the Murray-Darling Basin next. On ABC Radio Victoria, you're with Warwick Long for the Victorian Country Hour. Because if announcements of duck hunting and announcements of compensation, which we talked about uh, for electricity transmission lines coming through, farmers are happening on Friday, wasn't enough? Well, uh, ministers water ministers from around the Murray-Darling Basin were also meeting on Friday. A major deadline for the Murray-Darling Basin plan is approaching, but seemingly water ministers from the Basin couldn't agree on what should be done about it at a meeting on Friday. Clint Jasper has been following that meeting of water ministers for the ABC and can join you now. Clint, welcome. Good day, Warwick. Uh, what can you tell us really about the, the meeting? What do we know about what was discussed and what was agreed upon? It was a very typical flow of events for a ministerial council or MINCO meeting. In the days leading up to Friday's meeting, we got a lot of strongly worded statements and positions coming out from the different state ministers, and that was really setting up a conflict between South Australia, which was asking... Um, for full delivery of not only the basin plan recovery water, but the additional 450 gigalitres and New South Wales and Victoria saying um, that it wouldn't be able to be done on time. And I guess um, just following the really wet summer that we've had, 
there was recognition of the flood's impact on um, basin communities and the federal government, which we kind of knew from estimates the Friday before, Senate estimates, um, reiterated again to ministers around the table that water buybacks would be used to recover at least part of the remaining 49 gigalitres to recover under the bridging the gap target. So they were the kind of the main issues everyone was talking about. So in terms of then moving forward, there is now, for a while it was an open secret, no one was really talking about it, that the Basin Plan wouldn't be done on time, Uh, but now it seems like it's out in the open. Uh, Are they going to do anything about it, the ministers? Is there a plan of what to do when the Basin deadlines aren't hit? We know from the communique that got released, uh, Queensland and New South Wales asked for an additional two years to complete their Northern Basin Toolkit measures and New South Wales and Victoria asked for a further two years to complete their um, sustainable diversion limit adjustment mechanism project. So that's the 605 um, and the 70 gigalitres in the Northern Basin. But the timelines for those projects are rapidly uh, drawing to a close. States have for the SIDLAM measures until the end of this year to either take a project off the list or amend a project to more accurately reflect the amount of gigalitres that it might be able to offset. And by the middle of next year, the Basin Authority will have conducted a reconciliation of how those projects are actually performing and will have sent an amendment to the Federal Water Minister, Tanya Plibersek, saying that the... um, the amount in the SIDLAM should be adjusted and that could potentially see that amount, the 605 so decrease. that's new though, that's that, that two-year request from those four states. that We now have a timeline. They're saying what probably not going to be done by, by the middle of next year or even earlier than that by these dates, but can we have another two years? Is that... Yeah, so New South Wales had a position paper out at the start of the um, at the start of last week, about this time last week, saying that um, they wanted more time, and it's been painfully obvious to anyone paying attention that a lot of these projects weren't done. Interestingly, the wording in the communique was two more years to get projects that are already well advanced finished. So for me reading that, that leaves big question marks over projects like Minindy Lakes, which is now known as the Better Barker. That was supposed to account for about 105 gigalitres out of that 605. But given where that project is at the moment, um, it's still very much in the feasibility stage. They haven't even notified the federal government that uh, they've changed it from the old project, um, the Menindee Lakes project. There's no way that that could be done in two more years. So the SIDLAM amount, I imagine, will definitely be getting adjusted in the middle of next year. I think they're just asking for more time for projects like what's happening at Naya, Vinifera and Borough Creek, where it's actually the flooding over the landscape that has delayed construction and just constructing anything has been pretty hard over the pandemic. So those are the types of projects they're asking for more time on. So if the initial suite of projects don't hit those targets, does this mean the government's going to be looking to buy more water in the future? Well, there aren't a lot of options uh, once that amendment is sent up to, or proposed amendment to the Basin Plan is sent to Tanya Plibersek. Minister Plibersek will be notified of what the shortfall is. At the moment, it's anywhere between 190 and 315 gigalitres out of that 605. That will potentially see the 
SIDLAM amount decrease and the bridging the gap amount increase. And then you can really, the, those projects, their funding ends in the middle of next year, but the federal government can carry on for as long as it wants recovering that water, just not under the guise of those programs. So they could expand the current tender that they have now for bridging the gap um, and increase the amount of water that they want to purchase from willing sellers, or they could um, roll over funding or create new funding to continue more infrastructure works. And also just finally too, Clint, the, the discussion of an Indigenous or a First Nations water allocation, there's been money there for a while for that. Was there further discussion on what to do with that funding or actually turning it into a water allocation at any point? I didn't get that sense from the communique. I guess the only positive sign for First Nations groups wanting progress on this issue is that it was actually discussed at the meeting. We did learn at Senate estimates uh, the previous Friday that the federal government was meeting with Mildren um, every two weeks was what they said. So it sounds like there's a lot more constructive talk, but again, it still sounds like all talk. And it is a fairly big job to work out, you know, $40 million doesn't buy you that much water in the market at current prices. So it's working out an equitable way to split that amongst um, the many first nations groups in the basin so it's not an easy task but it really has dragged on for many many years now and clint will the ministers meet again before the deadline at the middle of next year do we we know the timeline at least for the ministers meeting we know it's mid this year so um in a couple of months i guess somewhere sometime in the winter um and yeah, reading between the lines at Senate estimates, it sounds like there's a pretty big um, demand from South Australian politicians, at least to have one in Adelaide, because I think that's the city where it's happened the least. Um, and so we might see one in Adelaide, but yeah, mid this year is what the communique has let us know is about when they plan to meet next. Brilliant. We'll do it all again around that time, I reckon, Clint. <laughs> Thanks very much for joining us. Too easy. Clint Jasper there, our reporter who's been following the meetings of water ministers, uh, particularly last Friday's though, where we get to learn what was discussed, but not a whole lot on terms of what was decided that we've kept that we've seen yet, but we'll have to keep watching this space to see what will happen. You can give us your thoughts, 0467 842 722. If you'd like to send us a text, 0467 842 722. Plenty of your texts coming in, actually, uh, at the moment. Uh, the fact that flood water isn't classed as environmental is a joke, says someone on the text line. And there was one earlier on the basin. Ian from West Gippsland is explaining... Uh, saying was re-water buyback in the Murray-Darling Basin. No one has explained why water is not bought back from investors at a government set price. Those without land, like, oh, like those without land where it can be used and who are only in the market to profit from this situation, says Ian from West Gippsland. So you're talking a compulsory acquisition type thing there, Ian. No, it's certainly a market situation where people offer up water packages to the government at set prices and the government decides which one it wants to buy. That's the system that we're working in. I can't explain to you why that has happened. It's probably just because that's the plan to get the most water, but we'll have to watch that space and get more answers for you there. We've got the news headlines on the way and we'll also talk weather shortly on the country. ABC Listen. Uh, So tell me, what's the question that people ask the most on the Dr. Carl podcast? 
everything in the entire universe, from hematology to biology to geology. Was there really a big bang? What happens when I have dark urine in the toilet? And finally, why is the sky blue? But mainly just farts. Lots of farts. Dr. Carl and Dr. Lucy have all the answers on the Dr. Carl podcast. Find it on the ABC Listen app. You're with Warwick Long for the Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. Yeah, the weather is on the way, but let's find out what's making regional news headlines right now around our great state. Rio Davis has those headlines for us. Good afternoon, Rio. Good afternoon, Warwick. Making news around regional Victoria. A man who tried to disguise his wife's murder as a suicide has today been sentenced to life in prison by Victoria's Supreme Court. Adrian Basham brutally bashed, then murdered, his estranged wife, Samantha Fraser, at Cowes on Phillip Island in July 2018. Her body was discovered in the garage of the home they once shared after she failed to pick her children up from school. Last year, a jury took less than two days to find the 46-year-old guilty of Ms Fraser's murder. Basham will be eligible for parole in 2050. Arson and explosive detectives are on their way to northwest Victoria to investigate a fatal house fire. Emergency services were called to a fire at Indi Avenue in Red Cliffs about a quarter past 11 last night. The body of a 52-year-old man was found inside. Mildura Police Superintendent John O'Connor says the fire is being treated as suspicious. The head of La Trobe University, Professor John Dewar, will finish his term as Vice-Chancellor in early January. Professor Dewar has been in the role since January 2012. La Trobe University Council will now begin an international recruitment process to appoint the university's next Vice-Chancellor. And new Australian Bureau of Statistics data show nearly two-thirds of all people received a scam email, text or call in the past year. ABS Director of Crime and Justice Statistics, William Milne, says despite the deluge, only 2.7% of recipients responded. The ABS says more people are now reporting scams, most commonly those involving banks. And a regional Victorian medical professional is calling for temporary visa holders to be supported when they develop health issues in Australia. Advocates say the current system, excluding some temporary visa holders from Medicare, places financial burdens on migrant families and can force them to leave the country. For more regional news at any time, you can visit www.abc.net.au forward slash news. Thanks, Rio. Rio Davis there with regional news headlines. Uh, Warwick Long with you for the Country Hour. And Hannah Marsh, Senior Forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology, is here with the weather. G'day, Hannah. Good afternoon, Warwick. How's it looking today? Well, we have had some isolated shower activity on and south of the ranges and up to 9am this morning in the 24 hours we saw 18.4 millimetres at Coleraine, at 12.2 at Mount Sabine and since 9am we've had uh, 3.2 at Bulungarok and um, generally less than a millimetre otherwise. We are expecting the showers to continue to ease and they have done so on the uh, weather watch radar but there are still a few showers around at the moment. But we are expecting that to continue to ease as we head into the afternoon period. Having a look at some of the temperatures, we've been to uh, 26.3 degrees at Yarrawonga and Shepparton, up to 25 so far at Albury and Mildura at 24 at Bendigo, at 21 at Horsham, 20 in the city in Melbourne 
and 18.4 so far at Warrnambool and 15.9 at Ballarat. We're expecting um, it still to remain fairly cloudy in the south and for those isolated showers to continue again into tomorrow. Less likely about uh, the southwest, but particularly about central and eastern parts, looking at that shower activity continuing. There is also the chance of seeing an isolated thunderstorm uh, over East Gippsland as we head into the afternoon and evening period tomorrow. Uh, but we're still looking at conditions remaining dry and sunny in the north. Temperature-wise, we're generally looking at uh, a mild to warm day across the state tomorrow, and uh, the winds will be light to moderate southwesterly. So having a look at some of the temperatures, getting up to 20 degrees in Melbourne, 31 at Mildura, 24 for tomorrow at Horsham, uh, 29 for Shepparton, 27 at Bendigo and at 19 degrees for Warrnambool, 21 also at Ballarat and getting up to 25 degrees at Sale. Then on Wednesday, we're looking at a weak front uh, clipping the south coast, mostly passing over Tasmania, but this will see an increase in the shower activity on and south of the ranges. And uh, we're also looking at fairly similar temperatures, a bit milder in the north, uh, but still uh, cool to mild in the south on Wednesday. And the showers will start to ease on Thursday, but still looking at further shower activity on and south of the ranges for Thursday and Friday before contracting to eastern parts on Saturday and Sunday. Beautiful. Uh, Warnings-wise, I suppose, uh, for the rest of today, is there anything we need to... Is it Actually, just generally, Hannah, is it going to be quieter for warnings this week, I suppose, with the, with the temps a bit lower and, and uh, I suppose, the weather seemingly more stable? Yeah, pretty much. So we've got no warnings at the moment. Uh, we're not looking at any um, significant warnings really until Wednesday when we're just going to have a coastal wind warning in uh, the far east of East Gippsland. Other than that, uh, pretty much throughout the week, uh, like you say, warning free. Pretty gentle way to farewell summer, I'd, I'd suggest, but anyway. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we'll see how we go. Uh, on paper, we are farewelling it, but uh, in terms of the weather, we'll have to wait and Well, uh, that is very true, isn't it, Hannah? Thank you very much for that correction of, uh, <laughs> of my brashness, but uh, very true. Hannah, thanks for that. Thank you. A senior forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology taking you through the full forecast there. A couple of your texts just before we move on here on the Country Hour. Uh, Anthony saying, Warwick, the duck hunting decision, you again have people making the decisions that affect people uh, directly without knowing on the ground facts. I'm going through this personally at the moment, says Anthony. He says people refusing to look at the facts, leading to decisions that simply hurt those that need help. This one says, though, Mr. Borman needs to lose the F out of his party name. He doesn't represent anyone but shooters, says that text about Jeff Borman, who was on our program earlier from the Shooters, Fishers and Farmers Party. You can keep the text coming if you'd like, 0467 842 722. Now, look, Talked about government decisions. We talked about ministers meeting. Let's get away with that and, well, tempt your taste buds right now because the dried fruit industry is expecting to have two new grape varieties available for growers to plant in 2025. While they're still to be officially named, both varieties mature early and are rain-resistant. CSIRO research scientist uh, Peter Klingleffer explains why these qualities are being sought after by the industry. The three main varieties, 
number one being Sultana and Sun Musket and Sun Glow. Well, Sun Glow and Sun Musket ripen later than Sultana. And so even though they're rain tolerant, they may have issues with getting them dry in some seasons. So that's the main drive is risk management to spread time of harvest, time of cane cutting for trellis drying across the season. So when you're talking early, how early are we talking about those being summer pruned? Very hard to say because what's early, the seasonal effects are so big and this year's been a ripper very late. We'll be looking at two weeks earlier than Sultana. In terms of how much fruit these new varieties will yield, have you been able to look at that, which is obviously something that would really interest growers if they were going to put it in the ground? Originally we would select a new seedling uh, variety and if it didn't have a reasonable crop we wouldn't proceed with it but now for for the industry we're looking at certainly yields that are much greater than 10 tonne to the hectare. If everything goes to plan with these new varieties how soon could we see growers planting them out in vineyards? Yeah well, we're hoping with certainly with an earlier Sultana alternative um, and with a one that's got more musket than sun musket and ripens a little bit earlier, they should be available in probably two years. To get to the point where you're at now, how much work's been going on behind the scenes to get up to this point? Well, we've had good support from from the industry and from Hort Innovation for many years with the breeding work. Uh, the particular project at the moment is targeted at a Sultana alternative. There's always a breeding step evaluation step, getting material out onto semi-commercial evaluation on grower properties and then working with the industry to get source mother vine plantings established to meet the demand. And are you at that point where you've had growers evaluating these varieties that we're talking about now? Yeah, sure. Um, the two that are very close to being, being released have both been out on grower properties. Good feedback is... They're achieving high yields and and producing good dried fruit product. Processors have always paid a premium for golden-coloured dried fruit. But the industry is now also interested in whether there's black grape varieties that are suitable for drying. Well, we've always um, historically have looked at drying black grapes, of course, with the small current varieties and Carina being the main one there. But there's also opportunities with larger berried black types. Uh, I guess it's market-driven. With a black variety, there's two things. It's going to be slower drying because normally they don't get treated with drying emulsion like you would with Sultana. So the earlier the better. But the other issue is that it costs less to produce because you don't have to use the drying emulsion. At CSIRO research scientist Peter Klingleffer speaking to Kelly Hollingworth. I don't know about you. Every time I hear about new varieties of anything... In this case, dried fruit. I just want to eat them and <laughs> work out what it tastes like. Maybe, maybe that's just me. Uh, we've been speaking a lot on the Country Hour today about science and uh, believing science, trusting science and, and so forth. Well, 
Here's another story, though, on the questioning of such science and what it led to in terms of the change in agriculture, the desperate scramble to get approval for double-strength zinc phosphide mouse bait two years ago only happened after farmers pushed back against researchers who believed the regular strength bait was enough to provide a lethal dose of mice with a single grain. When researchers revisited a bait strength study that had been relied on since the 1980s, they discovered farmers were right in saying the bait they were applying wasn't lethal. Steve Henry, research officer with the CSIRO, says it's a good lesson in the importance of scientists listening listening to on-the-ground facts. Yeah, it's a bit of an interesting one because the scientists were always very keen to impart knowledge, but um, over a period of time, farmers were telling us repeatedly that they weren't seeing the results that they expected from their zinc phosphide baiting efforts. And so after hearing this a number of times, we actually started to investigate this in the lab and went through a series of projects that led to this discovery that mice were less sensitive to zinc phosphide than we thought. Okay, so before that point, before you did the extra work, you were relying on the sort of conventional wisdom, I think, from from a study back in the 1980s? Yeah, so the the work that was done around the sensitivity of mice to zinc phosphide was done in the USA in the 1980s. And um, when zinc phosphide first came into the country, it came in under, um, I guess, under an emergency permit, but I'm not 100% sure of that. But it was used in conventional tillage systems and the results that they got were quite good because we think mice could scurry around and find multiple grains and and get a lethal dose quite quickly. Which contrasts to real-world settings in the paddock? So now in in real-world settings in the paddock where we have conservation tillage, where there's lots of food, lots of shelter, zero disturbance, it's actually quite difficult for mice to find multiple baits. And so it's really critical that every grain of zinc phosphide is a lethal dose. What happens if it's not a lethal dose? From the initial study that we did in the lab, we discovered that if mice got a sub-lethal dose, they stopped taking the bait straight away. The duration of that aversion we don't understand yet. We don't understand how long they stopped taking the bait for, but certainly in our our studies that ran over three or four days, they didn't take bait again after they took that first sub-lethal dose. So you've only got one chance. Yeah, and, and particularly in a scenario like this season where there's lots and lots of other food in farming systems, so in some cases up to a tonne to the hectare of grain left on the ground, um, and that's 2,200 grains per square metre, if you're spreading bait at three grains per square metre, the chance of a mouse finding that lethal dose uh, or the probability of a mouse finding that lethal dose is quite low, so every bait needs to be lethal. Okay, so... You did all of that and then the APVMA approved this emergency permit and then the bait manufacturers started making this double strength bait. Yeah, that's correct. And and that also enabled us to do a a trial in the field at Parks where we confirmed that we got really good results. In fact, about 90% of the time using the double strength bait, which is a bait mixed at 50 grams per 50 grams of zinc phosphide per kilo of wheat bait, that about 90% of the time we get an 80% knockdown. So really effective results from using that double strength bait. What do you do if you've still got lots of the 25 grams bait in the shed? 
Yeah, and that's something I hear quite a bit from farmers. You know, they have holdings of 25 gram bait that's been stored really well in dry conditions. And so our, our, we're saying to them, don't throw that bait away, but use it under a scenario where you could probably get the best results. And, and that would be really dry conditions where there's almost zero other food around that gives mice the best chance of finding multiple grains of the bait and getting that lethal dose. But if there is plenty of background food, just forget about it. Yeah, hold off until you get that scenario where you give it the best chance. With this new double strength bait, have you changed your advice on baiting regimes? Can you get away with baiting less? Yeah, look, we think that, well, we're, we're thinking that we're, um, as we get more and more data in about the effectiveness of it, that we won't hear these stories about multiple applications of bait. Uh, and one of the things that we used to recommend when farmers were saying, well, we don't get the results we're expecting, is to bait six weeks ahead of sowing if there were lots of mice present, then continue to monitor until you sow the crop and then do another application at the point when you sow the crop if you still had mice. What we're saying now is get that background food down as low as you possibly can and then spread the bait as you sow the crop because that's the time when there's the least other food around gives mice the best chance of discovering those toxic grains. That is Steve Henry, Research Officer with the CSIRO, speaking with Angus Verley about mouse baiting regimes there. You're listening to The Country Hour. We're about to head to markets. Let's talk about a market we don't often chat much about in Victoria right now because much like mutton, the vast majority of Australian goat meat is exported. And similarly, there's been a sharp price drop in the goat meat market lately. In the past six months, the price of goat meat's dropped from $9 a kilo to as little as $2.50 a kilo due to strong supply. However, the numbers all show goat production and slaughter remains on the rise. Based in Werlinga, just outside Albury, Dominic Hickey from Chandler Park Goat Stud breeds boar goats for exports. And he's speaking here to Annie Brown that the demand for goat meat is booming and he hopes to grow the Australian market. It's a a breed that comes from South Africa, so they're pretty hardy, they like the hot temperatures, put on a lot of meat quickly, but yeah, and they're they're just a friendly a friendly breed. Yeah, they are incredibly docile, you goats. We're amongst them right now with the does. We've walked through the paddock of bucks. Like, you goats, I don't know, goats, I guess, sometimes have a bit of a bad rap for having a bad temper, but your goats are very friendly. And that's, especially when when we got our our herd, we had the the main buck, Paul, here, who's about 120 kilos, and we were very cautious of him, and same thing, we had that natural fear, but it's seemed the opposite it's yeah they're like big teddy bears and you've got to treat them with respect but yeah they're 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 great how did you get into to goat farming it was actually we we heard something on the country hour a a few years ago about how good the prices of goats were going i spoke to my wife and said why don't we get a few just to to try it out and the people we went to see were retiring and offered us the whole herd um, and we had to think about it and then went why not and yeah overnight we became goat farmers yeah so the goat industry over the last few years has really boomed in mm. australia how have you found it what's it, your experience been like it's been difficult because we we purchased our animals just before covid um the people we bought the herd off they were solely exporting to overseas markets 
So that's what we were hoping to do. Then COVID happened and exports shut down completely. But the price for domestic animals, so the reason people went ex to export was the prices were a lot higher. But the prices have just skyrocketed from, in the three years we've been doing it, from, yeah, almost tripled in price. Wow. Yeah, for the stud, for stud animals. And a lot of producers, we're getting people who are buying our bucks to put over rangeland and getting a sort of crossed boar rangeland cross, but with a, a meatier kid. Their popularity has really, really boomed. We could sell a lot more if we had more land. and But, yeah, we're doing it part-time, which makes it difficult. But for us, we're, we're happy where we're at now. We'll see where we go for the next couple of years. We'd, we'd like to get more land, maybe one of us be able to give up work and farm full-time that's the dream dream. yeah that's the dream tell me a bit more about the export market so where do they go to and i guess how do you export them as well it can be through the the breed association we'll get notification that and there's an export order in place so sometimes they can be like a national level like the philippines government want two three hundred goats and they'll then get an australian exporter who will ring all the main breeders um, and see what availability we've got. And then, yeah, they, they get taken off um, to a quarantine station and then they're, they're flown first class to the, <laughs> the Philippines or Malaysia. Yeah, there's, there's a big market overseas for them. Can I ask what's the price usually for a goat to export? For a doe, anything up to sort of $1,000 at the moment. Yeah, it's, it's good money. But they have to meet the breed standard and not everything meets it. So talking about the meat industry part of it, though, the meat industry for, for goats at the moment, we've seen yeah. huge drops in the price for goat meat just in the last six months, like more than half of yeah. the price has gone from $9 a kilo down to like $3 or under Yeah, $2.50 $2. for, for boar goats at the moment. And it's, it's surprising that it's dropped so much because the demand still seems to be really high um i'm constantly getting inquiries for people who want boar goat meat locally um from as far as melbourne sydney it is popular with the ethnic communities um i'd love to get it more into the australian plate because um yeah at the moment boar goats are paying less at the at the market than rangeland goats these we do a lot of regenerative practices so they're grass-fed They've got premium loosen. They get premium grain. They're, they're like racehorses, really. They they are getting getting spoiled. So it is a premium product. The the meat's got great fat content, great flavour, and it just doesn't seem to get the respect for some reason. I guess though, with the pretty um, you know small prices at the moment, does that deter you from take, sending your goats to to slaughter? Yes and no. Um, I think at the moment, if they continue the way they are, then we might even look at doing a farm direct thing and maybe doing a direct-to-market, approaching some restaurants direct. Because, yeah, what, what we're selling is, is definitely worth more than what they're willing to pay. And the fact that it's paying less than a wild animal, I 
just think is not right. That's Dominic Hickey from Chandler Bark, Boar Goat Stud, speaking there to Annie Brown. We've got to get straight into markets here on the country. I've got a few to get through today on a Monday. Let's start with the cattle markets. We'll head off to Wagga and Leanne Dax. Good afternoon. 3,200 cattle agents mustered, of which there were 730 cows. Light steers back to the paddock were back 30 cents, 405 to 485. Feeder steers, lightweight, were back 20 cents, quality related, 330 to 450. Medium weight feeder steers were unchanged to a few cents dearer, 346 to 414. Trade steers were back 10, 336 to 390, while trade heifers were up 15 cents, 340 to 390. Feeder heifers sold to patchy demand with the lightweights back 20 cents, topping at 384. Medium weights ranged from 320 to 388. Heavy steers and bullocks were unchanged, 320 to 379. Heavy feeder steers are up 10, 340 to 408. Heavy cows ease 4 cents, 275 to 306. And the leaner types, 235 to 275. Leanne Ducks, MLA. Thanks, Leanne. Let's go to Mortlake Cattle and Chris Agnew. Thanks, Warwick. Another large offering of 1,520 cattle here at Mortlake this week, an increase of some 200. The market was firm over most categories, with the exception of the dairy cows, which were 10 to 20 cents stronger, together with manufacturing steers, and they were up by 10 to 15 cents a kilo. Some plainer cattle on offer in the trade offering were slightly softer again this week. The pick of the veal making between 390 and 466, yielding steers and heifers 350 to 400 cents, and the grown steers and heifers topped out at 390 cents. Manufacturing steers 290 to 342, and the good beef cows made between 300 and 330 cents a kilo. Medium cows 270 to 310, and the dairy cows, the well covered dairy cows, 260 to 300 cents. At Mortlake, this is Chris Agner reporting for MLA. Thanks, Chris. Let's go off to Packenham and the cattle market there is with Brendan Fletcher. G'day, Brendan. G'day, Warwick. Numbers increased to 980. That's 220 more with the usual buyers operating more selectively in a cheaper market in places. Quality declined with fewer prime cattle and a larger proportion of secondary lots. Trade cattle eased up to 20 cents with quality an issue. Bullocks eased 5, manufacturing steers lifted a few cents. Cows eased 3 to 10 cents with processors loading cows for an estimated 590 to 626 cents a kilogram carcass weight. Heavy bulls eased slightly. Veelers sold from 330 to 486, yielding trade steers 370 to 456, the heifer portion 340 to 450. Grown steers 340 to 410, bullocks 360 to 386, heavy frozen steers 295 to 311, crossbreds 307 to 374. Most light and medium weight cows 228 to 262, heavyweights 256 to 328, heavy bulls 268 to 320. This is Brendan Fletcher reporting for MLA. Thanks Brendan, lucky last is the sheep and lamb market reports. Let's go to Bendigo and Jenny Kelly. Good afternoon. A few more numbers about with 11,700 lambs and 5,200 sheep. Once again, quality was an issue with properly finished lambs hard to find. The two major domestic processes didn't operate today. Lambs over 26 kilos were firmed for a few dollars dearer in places, tracking at 780 to 820 cents. But once under 24 kilos, a lot of the trade lambs were easier, costing 740 to 780 cents. Prices reached $289 for a pen of big crossbred lambs that agents said weighed 94 kilos live weight. 
After this, most export weight lambs, $235 to $260. The main run of heavy shorn crossbreds, 26 to 30 kilos, 200 to 238 to average 219. A lot of trade lambs, 160 to 185. The 22 to 24 kilo crossbreds averaging 173. Store lambs sold according to quality. Some of the bigger and better bred lines dearer. Small lambs to the paddock, 63 to 115. Lambs with frame, 110 to 148. In the sheep, merino ewes and weathers are up to $10 dearer to reach $127. Jenny Kelly for MLA. Oh, look at that we got there. I hope you have a great afternoon. That's all the time we have for you on the Country Hour today. Do it all again tomorrow. Catch you then. It's 1 o'clock.